I, and you think about the fact that what would have happened if the New York Times had not done that investigation? You know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. What would have happened if they didn't do that investigation? Also, other things come to mind is how many drone strikes over the years, and we'll get into it, but how many drone strikes over the years have killed innocent civilians? Did this not, did this, this not start with the most recent drone strikes? And how many times has the United States covered it up, you know, by saying, you know, we hit our intended targets and et cetera? Welcome back to Beyond Culture. We are a podcast that attempts to bridge the gap between culture and politics. I'm your host, Ivan. In today's episode, we discuss all things U.S. politics. After a somewhat quiet few months into Joe Biden's presidency, the administration has been facing many challenges, both foreign and domestic. We have a conversation on Afghanistan and the history of U.S. intervention in the Middle East as it regards to drone strikes and foreign policy. We then shift our attention to the Democrats' continued efforts to pass both a reconciliation package and an infrastructure bill as moderates face off against the progressive wing of the party. Finally, we give an update on Canada's relationship with China as both Michaels are freed following the deferred prosecution of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. This and much more. Take a listen. Welcome back to Beyond Culture. I'm your host, Ivan. Here are my co-host, Abel. Hello, hello, welcome back. Welcome back. It's good to be back after, especially the Canadian federal election, you know. We went at it pretty hard, you know, almost every week there was something new to talk about, so that preoccupied our time for for some time, so, you know, it's good to shift, you know, focus a bit to U.S. politics, because we, we like to cover, we, we cover both a lot for people who've already listened to the podcast, you know, that we talk a lot about U.S. politics. And, you know, a lot has happened recently in U.S. politics. And, you know, there's always this ongoing theme that when a new president comes in, there's a honeymoon phase. But after the honeymoon phase, it's, uh, it's rough. It's a rough patch. And this is really the area where Biden is in right now. So, so yeah, it's been really crazy to see because obviously coming off the Donald Trump presidency, people wanted that uh, security and wanted that, you know, that back to normal, uh, you know, a back to normal, let's say, just feeling in America. But obviously, once the honeymoon period ends, there's a lot of external factors that happen that create this environment. And there's also a lot of internal decisions that are made that create kind of an unstable environment. But it's been crazy to see this reoccurring thing happen also with Joe Biden. But yeah, it was uh, impressive to see that it lasted it lasted that long. But uh, but yeah, that's that's just uh, the cycle. All right, let's get into uh, Afghanistan. Obviously, for for the people who were able to listen to our conversation with uh, Marwa, who runs the Care to Give charity, um, based out of Toronto, but does a lot of work in Afghanistan. They've done work with charities, uh, with uh, orphanages in Afghanistan, and etc. Uh, just if you, if for those who didn't listen to that conversation, you know, what I, I got from that when I was talking to her is like this humanitarian crisis has, has existed for a very long time. You know, it's not something that just started with the recent evacuation, you know, of military troops of Afghanistan. So it's been going on for quite, for quite some time. And she, for herself, person, that's what she said. She's like, you know, Afghanistan was one of the countries where, you know, it's not really talked about when it comes to, uh, in terms of humanitarian uh, crisis, it's something. It's a country that's kind of overlooked, and that's why she really wanted to be able to go back to her country and help them out there. And what we saw recently, in terms of the political lens, 
to what happened in Afghanistan is that the Donald Trump uh, administration had signed a deal with the Taliban in 2020. The deal basically stated that America would withdraw from Afghanistan in by May 2021. So once Biden came into the presidency, he basically continued with that deal, but extended the deadline to August 2021. That's what we saw. Everything really came to a head in August. That's when the uh, American troops were to officially be withdrawn from uh, Afghanistan. And recently, we had the there were some hearings of some generals. General Milley uh, was including in those hearings too, where his view at the moment at at that time when they were looking at withdrawing from Afghanistan in August was that if the troop levels were to were to go under twenty five hundred, so two thousand five hundred troops, then you can see the fall of Kabul happen pretty quickly, right? He was like, we need to stay at around 2,500 so that, you know, we could kind of keep some operations going without having what we, what we, what we just saw happen. Now that has been a contested point because Joe Biden has said that nobody had ever talked to him about keeping 2,500 troops. And when it came to the hearings, General Milley, like his, basically his own standard is always like, I'm not going to say, what me and the president talked about exactly. But I will say my view, my personal view was that we should have 2,500 residual forces in Afghanistan. Now, what exactly happened, we'll never truly know. But if you have the main general military saying that that was his view, you could, you, you can kind of assume that he told that to Joe Biden, but also in a sense, Joe Biden at that moment was like, we need to get the ball rolling. Like you, you can see by his press conferences that he was like, you know, we could have waited. I don't know how much longer with keeping American troops in there. Like whether it was today, tomorrow, in five years, you know, the the issue wouldn't have changed. To that's according to Joe Biden. But what we saw in in August was complete horror. Like the first images I saw was people hit clinging from, you know, the big C one thirty airplane. Like that. Those were scenes that I did not, I did not think we would be, I would be seeing, especially at that time. And you can tell by how the generals were talking as well. And people in the, in the Biden administration, nobody expected Kabul to fall that quickly to the Taliban. Yeah. So as you were saying, you know, like no one expected, um, Kabul to, to fall as quickly as it did. You know, that was obviously a failure of, uh, U.S. intelligence and, you know, like there are some statements made by uh, the president Joe Biden earlier in the year w- that were reflecting, you know, some, you know, confidence from the part of uh, the U.S. saying that, you know, like the capital was going to fall, that, you know, that was not something that they were envisioning, but the situation changed quickly. Um, but, you know, that's, it's something that happened, you know, if you looked at uh, the whole country, you'd have, you know, you, you could have, seen the pattern you know uh the taliban was taking over a lot of uh regions in the country and uh you know and obviously uh, the the afghan uh, military was was ill prepared you know it it was uh you know it was there was systemic uh uh corruption in, in that military and in just the the Afghanis, uh, uh, government, you know, with like, you know, if you look at Ghani's, uh, uh, 
the president Ghani's uh, administration, there is a lot of uh, allegations of corruptions, you know, and uh, you would hear about, you know, um, transfer of wealth outside of the country and that kind of thing, you know. So, uh, although it wasn't, you know, nobody knew how fast it was going to happen, you know, like, you know, like, I don't think that was like the most important, you know, the most important point. Um, like, I feel like one of the failure of the media in covering the, uh, this story is that they focused a lot on, on, on what happened at the end, the withdrawal of the troops, you know, rather than focus, focusing on, on the situation in the country and what was happening in the months prior to, to the withdrawal, you know, like, the suffering of uh, Afghan Afghan people didn't begin, um, you know, like in August 2021. You know, like if if you, I feel like for any rational person, you you must ask ask yourself what exactly was the point of the U.S. presence in in that country, especially since uh, the the reason of of the invasion uh, was that it was to go find Bin Laden, and Bin Laden has been dead for. You know, a decade now. So, like, what exactly was the U.S. military trying to accomplish in in that country? And you know, and Bin Laden has was out of that. You know, moved out of that country a, a while before he 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 was killed by the U.S. military in twenty twenty uh, in twenty eleven. So, you know, I feel like those those are like the the questions that people should be asking themselves. You know, and. Uh, foreign policy is one of those areas in 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 U.S. politics where there tend to be a lot of agreement, and people don't really question the the underlying um, you know suppositions. You know, like you know, like you know, I was I was uh, like I was really struck by how people are just like wanted to blame uh, Joe Biden on on the withdrawal, but never wanted to look at the past 20 years you know and and you know and it was it was a lot of those same people who were making the decisions who were on the on tv and you know berating the the current administration but they never they never took responsibility for what was happening in the country you know like i i remember reading an article um when all of this was happening i was trying to find it in preparation for for this uh episode but i couldn't find it but it was basically talking about the other because like we often hear about the women's rights uh the of you know the rights of women in afghanistan but that article was kind of talking about the other women in afghanistan the women in the rural areas you know not the the women who are like in the capital or the biggest cities like the women who are actually suffering from poverty you know who are suffering from uh from violence and just deaths in their families you know like you know all of that was happening under the you know that was the status quo so let's not act as if the status quo was ideal you know like for example the the whole question about whether uh keeping 2500 troops would have uh would have helped uh kabul uh, like uh, the the afghan military not to uh you know, well, to, to keep control of Kabul, you know, like, sure, but, you know, what's the bigger question there? You know, like, it, like, is, is it more important to just have control of one city and, 
and keep on fighting and being engaged in a civil war where like there would could be there would be more fatalities and uh, with you know like in being in a war where nobody knows exactly what what you know like the foreign powers namely the u.s and its allies are trying to accomplish you know like if you asked i'm pretty sure if you asked you made a uh you ran a poll and asked uh the like you know the average american what was what's you know what was the goal of you know of the of the war in afghanistan in the past decade what what uh goals have the u.s been trying to accomplish you know like nobody would would know exactly like i feel like it would like a really really small minority would know exactly what the u.s is trying to accomplish there so you know like uh just to come back on on my major point is that we we must not just look at you know those obviously those images were shocking and you know like that's not something you wish for but at the same time we have to look at the bigger picture more people are dying you know like in in afghanistan because of poverty because of you know of corruption and the afghan military it wasn't like a you know it was you know it was a corrupt institution and it tortured people and all of that behind the backing of 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 the u.s so we can't just you know kind of act as if you know the status quo was uh was ideal mm-hmm. yeah because what you saw over the course of the war in afghanistan is that the goalpost was shifting every three years at first it started we're there you know because we want to catch osama bin laden okay that that happens and after what what's so why are we still there Okay, now we're there for counterinsurgency. Okay, fine. We're there for counterinsurgency. After that, what happens? We're there for, now you kind of see rumblings of, we're there for nation building. So is it Osama bin Laden, nation building or counterinsurgency, or is it all of it together? Or is it none of these three options and it's something else that, you know, cause I don't know a lot of people have theories about other reasons why we could, why we could be there, but you can see it was so crazy because I've watched some documentaries about certain soldiers that have been down there. And some of them weren't even born, like, where 9-11 had happened, you know? Like, the troops that were getting sent to Afghanistan were getting younger and younger. And you, you you start to wonder, like, why exactly are they there? What battles exactly are they fighting? And the rationale a lot of these soldiers would tell themselves is, like, at the end of the day, I'm fighting for the guy next to me. It wasn't more so, like, oh, I'm fighting for this grander goal. I'm fighting more for the guy next to me because at at some point the war to many soldiers which I've watched in documentaries the at some point though the war kind of became like it didn't really know what was what was the point of still being there and these are soldiers that are in Afghanistan we're not here in Afghanistan we're back home and we're watching from the outside so if people that are sent there still can't really see why they're still there like can you imagine how like Americans back home feel like just watching their soldiers going there and dying. Like, what is the point of us still being in Afghanistan? And I remember a lot of people started comparing the current evacuation of Afghanistan to the fall of Saigon in uh, Vietnam because it, by because that question a reporter had asked Biden that question before you know everything came to its head in Afghanistan. They asked Biden, "Will we be seeing you know helicopters on top of roofs?" 
you know, evacuating U.S. personnel. And then Biden was like, nah, that could, um, it's not even remotely the same. This won't happen. And I think that's what really hurt Biden politically because there was a lot of these, you know, quotes that he had a few, some, some of them even a few weeks before, you know, the Afghanistan evacuation became uh, what it became. And what was interesting about Saigon is that you really, like, there you can truly see a delay and the evacuation of U.S. personnel and people that also had worked for um, for the United States, like that, that was very much so delayed. And Ambassador Martin gets a lot of the blame for that, but a lot of other things happen as happen as well. But as you see, the the North Vietnamese Army like getting closer to the city of Saigon, you see a delay, a delay, a delay, and then finally, in the space of twelve hours, they. The, the, that's where really you see the, the main, the biggest part of the evacuation happened, like literally in the space of 12 hours. And it was so bloody. It was so, it was so deadly because everybody was rushing basically to get to the embassy to get a, to get a flight on a helicopter that would then bring you to an aircraft carrier. And what's interesting is that U.S. troops had already evacuated Saigon maybe, I think, two years prior to the fall of Saigon. So the troops were already out. The fall, when I talk about the fall of Saigon, I talk about it's more about when the U.S. basically evacuated its embassy. That's more because that was a sign that, OK, there is no way. Like if I want to get to out of, of, of Vietnam, this is my last opportunity. So you saw a lot of Vietnamese rush to the rush to the embassy trying to get in. And like we did see in Afghanistan, a lot of people that had worked for the U.S. were also left you know, to their own devices to try to fend for themselves. And by the time the Northern Vietnamese army got to, got to Saigon, a lot had been left, uh, still in Vietnam. And you saw a lot of lawlessness, uh, in the beginning. Slowly and surely things became more, more lawful. But originally, once you see that type of collapse in a government, lawlessness obviously falls and that hurts a lot of the people that are still there. Not only that, but you see like, I believe 200,000 to 300,000 uh, people being sent to re-education camp, which whether it's military soldiers, people that have worked previously with the U.S., you see them sent to re-education camp, where a lot of them don't make it back out of the re-education camp because there's torture, starvation, and all these things. So I think those are important things to say and draw parallels from because when you see people in Afghanistan rushing to get to the airport, trying to get on those planes, and et cetera, to evacuate Afghanistan, I think it's important to keep in mind what what they fear can happen to them. And if you fast forward now to what's happening in Afghanistan, it's not safe at all. Like recently, I believe over the weekend, they had a, a, a mass funeral because there had been a suicide attack at a mosque. So people in Afghanistan are not feeling safe. Obviously, one of the main people that are hurting their safety is ISIS, ISIS-K, and the Taliban don't have a control over them. And... What we saw also during an evacuation is that there had been a terrorist attack at the at the Kabul airport, which killed 13 U.S. service members. Uh, also, 170 uh, Afghans died during that attack, and much more obviously were injured. But that uh, that to me was like, if we, when it's easy to see it in hindsight, but just looking at it, it's like you can predict something like that could happen when you have so many people crowding an airport. There's no like organization to it everybody's just trying to get to whatever entry point they can and you look at it from the perspective of isis they this is they like this is the type of stuff that they use 
to commit their suicide attacks. And obviously the suicide attack happened and it was very deadly. Like 170 Afghans died. Like that's, that's a lot. That's a lot, a lot, a lot of people that were just trying to escape the country. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very, it's very tough to see because like we all sense an anger, like from, I think everybody has a different perspective on where their anger uh, is when you see a, a, t- a terrorist attack like that. But I think the U.S. the U.S. anger, like a lot of it, was towards the fact that you know thirteen U.S. military members died during that attack. You know, trying to be in this "quote unquote" botched evacuation plan. You know, like that's thirteen of our own that went there because of this evacuation, and now that won't come home and they're dead. So Biden had in that moment, Biden felt a lot of pressure from obviously everybody, a lot of people in America, but but I would say Republicans, etc. That what are you going to do to avenge the deaths of these 13 U.S. military members? And I think every everybody obviously feels that type of way that there should be, you know, repercussions for such actions. But it's not only 13 U.S. military members that died, it's 170 Afghans. Like, how is this going to be? As this cannot just go unpunished. But the thing is, just this kind of like, I don't know how you call it, but it, it, it sometimes... In moments of like this, you need to have cool heads. You know, these are the moments that set a precedent in all of history. And I, and I go back to the reason why the U.S. was in Afghanistan in the first place because of 9-11, right? And during 9-11, you see George Bush get ultimate power to, you know, attack, uh, enemies, uh, that are trying to attack America, et cetera. But that was only given to him by the government, right? And you only had, I believe, one is she a congresswoman or uh, a senator that she's the only one that had voted against giving George Bush unanimous power? You know, she was able to keep her cool because she kind of looked in the future like this is going to set a very bad precedent for America. But now you fast forward now to Afghanistan. 13 U.S. military members died. 170 Afghans die. What does America do? With all that anger, all that rage, they find the first target they can find. Find whoever, which they said was he was a ISIS K con- contributor. His car was filled with explosive or whatever. We tracked his vehicle. I forgot for how long they, tra- they had tracked his vehicle. I think I, I think it maybe it was it was eight hours. They're just tracking his movements and etc. And then boom, they do a drone strike in a heavily populated area, heavily urban urban area. And at that time, you know, you have generals coming out saying, you know, this was a righteous strike. This this man was probably on his way to the airport. You know. Another attack was imminent. You know, tensions were very high because of that original attack at the Kabul airport. And obviously, like I said, they said there has been a righteous strike and et cetera. And lo and behold, you see the New York Times. That's the first time I had really seen a contradictory storyline storyline to what the government was saying. When I saw the New York Times video on YouTube, I watched it and the way it was so thorough. This was amazing. This is what journalism is all about. You know, it was very thorough in the way they interviewed the family members. They got the CCTV footage of all of, uh, I believe his name is Ahmadi's, Ahmadi's movements, you know, leading up to, uh, leading up to basically his, his assassination by the U.S. government. Like they tracked everything. And then once I watched that video, I'm just like, this, this, what the U.S. is saying does not, does not add up to this story. Like this, this reporting is so thorough. Like for me, I'm just like I don't believe what the U.S. government is uh, the U.S. government is saying is saying at all. And I know behold, the U.S. government comes out and says, you know what? 
the the draw strike was a tragic mistake. You know, uh, this uh, Amari was not the the attend the Amari was not the let's say ISIS contrib uh, contributor. You know, we got it wrong and etc. And it is it's crazy because it's not only Amari that died. Is seven children. You know, I believe his cousin also died. Like those are people that died because. Where America was so hot headed in that moment, seeking to get revenge, you know, however, wait. And now, you know, innocent civilians are dead. And you think about the fact that, you know, these are the, like, if you claim to want to fight counterinsurgency, these are the things that go against counterinsurgency. Cause what do you think the feeling is of the family members of those people that you killed? Like, Amari's family had, uh, his family had applied to come to the United States. They were, they had applied to be evacuated as well. He worked for a humanitarian aid organization that was based out of the United States. You know, things like, things like that happen. And you just look at like, man, these, these things that you call tragic mistakes, you know, they change the course of history for a lot of people, especially the people, the family members of, uh, Amari. But yeah, just seeing that story was, it was very, very tough, tough, tough story to watch. And I, and you think about the fact that what would have happened if the New York Times had not done that investigation? You know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. What would have happened if they didn't do that investigation? Also, other things come to mind is how many drone strikes over the years, and we'll get into it, but how many drone strikes over the years have killed innocent civilians? Did this not, did this, this not start with the most recent drone strikes? And how many times has the United States covered it up, you know, by saying, you know, we hit our intended targets and et cetera? Yeah. No. Yeah, it, that was just a sad story. I mean, sometimes, you know, it's really hard to, to kind of gauge and understand why, for example, some communities, uh, across countries like Afghanistan support, um, uh, support government or, uh, uh, people like the Taliban, you know, like it's, you know, sometimes you just have to put your, your, you have to put yourself in their shoes. So, you know, imagine someone who's, who's a, you know, humanitarian aid worker and who has a huge impact on your community is joint strike by, by the U.S. How are you going to feel about the, the United States? You know, like how's your, your, your community, your village, your, your town, whatever is going to feel about the U.S., you know? So sometimes, you know, those kind of, those kind of things are not what are like, in in the minds of many people and you know like to say that people to say that uh one does not support militarism does not mean that you know uh you know we should uh you know just uh take a big step back and let the world uh be remain a you know be a jungle you know that does not mean that one supports isolationism you know like there are ways that uh, healthy countries or you know like the the government of uh, healthy countries can help people abroad you know in in uh, less developed countries you know like it it doesn't have to be you know uh uh in a militaristic fashion you know like you know there are a lot of like poverty in across the world is a big issue you know malaria is a big issue look at covid vaccinations you know like you know that that is also a big issue, and those uh, things highlight the inequalities be, between nations. But uh, it feels like we, you know, you know, healthy nations are are 
like are really motivated when it comes to uh to campaigns of uh you know military campaigns but not when it comes to really you know like humanitarian uh campaigns you know like it, it so you're left to wonder what exactly are you trying to do are you really trying to build a better future for all people in Afghanistan or are you trying to build uh you know a future in Afghanistan where Afghanistan is a country that you can you can control or you you can have a lot of influence over you know so uh you know it's to say that you know like for example that the the war on terror has been a failure is not to say that you know like uh you know we should let terrorists just uh we should just let terrorists unpunished or whatever you know like one of one of the quote that really really um uh, uh uh disturbed me from joe biden I, I i don't know if i can recall it completely but when he was talking about um the the people who who you know the terrorists who did the uh, who uh, uh did that attack at the airport you know like the the language he used he was like we're going to find you or we're going to kill you you know but but you know but try to take the, that terrorist attack and put it in the context of of the United States or you know like a major crime happens in the United States a massive you know a mass murderer shoots like 150 people you know like it's it's the same amount of life so what would he have said would do you think he would have gone out there if it was an american citizen and said you know i'm going to find you and kill you that's not the 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 type of language we use in in our own society so in our own society so why are we using it when it comes to uh folks abroad you know like we have like in our own society we have developed uh, systems of justice where people who, who do these types of acts are brought forth and, you know, and are brought forth, in, um, and condemned in front of, uh, you know, the rule of, you know, the rule of law, uh, plays a role in that sense. And it's not just like, you know, it's not just a unilateral, uh, uh, action that comes from, you know, the executive power that comes in and just like, let's say John strikes uh you know the mass shooters or or whatnot you know so you know like there's that asymmetry when it comes to how we talk about like uh you know crimes and even terrorism in our own countries and how we talk about them abroad you know that's why you know like even the people who are trying to construct the system of justice internationally aren't supported by many of these countries for example the US does not allow uh its military leaders to be judged in front of the international court of justice and if you look if you look at the past 20 years of uh, uh of uh, the U- u.s military campaigns you know like you know like it it would be imaginable if the u.s wasn't the power it is not to have a few people or like a not just a few you know like people uh brought to justice you know like the u.s committed atrocities over the past 20 years like in you know in terms of torture and you know uh illegal detainings and just uh, like these drone strikes and you know like so i i just feel like it's just it's just one of those areas that i feel really bad because like we we have like an asymmetry and how we talk about like 
our own societies and the societies abroad. And we kind of don't, we try not to reconcile that uh, contradiction, you know? So, um, but yeah, so like, like to finish, like for, for people, like for me, it's not, I'm not saying that, you know, just because like the war on terror was a failure means that, you know, like there's nothing we should do or we couldn't do, you know, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's important that we look at the, you know, we go back and look at the, like, you know, what was the result of all of this? You know, like Afghanistan was considered the good war. It, you know, Iraq was considered, has been in the mainstream considered as a big mess, but now we're also seeing that Afghanistan was also a terrible war, you know? So if we kind of look at the results of, of, of the, the war on terror, like in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Somalia, in Libya, like all of these countries are worse off, you know, uh, now than how they were prior to, to, to these campaigns. So, uh, my question would be to, to all these foreign policy experts, like what are the lessons you learned, you know, like what are the lessons you learned from these wars? You know, like I, I'm pretty, like it's, I feel like uh, it's pretty justified to say that two trillion dollars uh, were wasted in Afghanistan. You know, like at least or a, a big chunk of of those two trillion dollars were really wasted because, like, what exactly was the U.S. trying to do there? But look at how you know, like, the discussion that uh, the U.S. is uh, is having right now about you know, like, uh, domestic policy. You know, that's that's around that that in that range you know of 3.5 uh, trillion dollars of of uh, infrastructure uh, investments you know like but look at how you know like people are like are are really heated when they're talking about that but like there's none of this discussion uh, uh when it came to the war in Afghanistan you know or even the the Pentagon's budget that was you know, that was voted on recently, you know, like people don't have these discussions. So it's really important to just sometimes take a break and, and really look at what the U.S. is or what, you know, wealth nations are really trying to accomplish abroad and whether like, you know, whether what they're trying to do is actually good. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think you made a good point, and I want to bring it back to is is this uh, concept of you know finding uh, justice or getting justice. You know, I, I there was a point where getting justice was you know bringing somebody to court, to trying them, and then you know sentencing them to be in prison for etc. But I think what happened is that the drone the drone program the drone strike program changed everything because it came it changed from capturing these individuals to killing them i were killing them now mind you i think there's a there's a debate there's a bait there that i think it's a valid debate about the let's say what drones allow you to do drones basically allow you to save the lives of military members you know instead of sending them into let's say harm's way you get to just fly a drone over and then target somebody and then kill and then and then kill that person but what we have seen happen is that because there's a bit of like let's say because it's so much easier to use drones you have kind of seen also um the structures that uh the, the structures in place that basically inhibit somebody from 
randomly killing civilians. You've seen that strikers, those strikers be eroded because drone strikes were so easy, right? So, as at least at the beginning, like first drone strikes started with uh, President uh, George Bush, but over the course of time, when it came to Obama, you know, it reached its peak in terms of its usage at the beginning of Obama's um, Obama's presidency. Like basically, I believe the only barrier you had to uh, using drones was that you just needed to be near certain that there would be uh, no civilian casualties or whatever. And near certain can mean anything, right? It is, it's a very fluid, fluid term. Towards the end of the Obama's presidency, you kind of saw a bigger structure where I think it could take, could take almost up to a month or whatever for before a drone strike could be approved, right? There was like chain of commands. They had to pass maybe even 12 people before the president makes that decision. But to get to that point, a lot of civilians died. A lot of civilians, like between 2014 and 2016, like there had been 424 uh, drone strike where 966 civilians died. You know, that is, it, it just, it just demonstrate that this undiscriminate use of the drone had created, because it, it's, it's, this is a, it's a new modern battlefield. And obviously with the more modern battlefield, battlefield, you know, rules and regulations aren't in place. People kind of discard those because they believe whatever action they're taking in the moment is justified, right? And even to a certain degree, at the uh, there, there had been a time where the U.S. would basically classify anybody that had been killed in a drone attack as enemies until it could be proven without a shadow of a doubt that the person killed in a drone strike was a civilian. It should It should have been the other way around. You have to prove without a shadow of a doubt that the people that you kill in the drone strikes are enemies. It should not be the other way around where you're presumed an enemy because you're killed in a drone strike. And that's what we saw. That was one of the things that happened with uh, the United States. They would presume people that were killed in drone strikes as enemies until they could prove without a shadow of a doubt that they were civilians. And I was just talking to one of a friend about the recent drone strike in Afghanistan and he and he made a good point out of it and it made me really think about it. It's like this 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 culture of covering up in the United States is so it's it's so dark. It's so it's so corrupt. He's like you kill the innocent man and not only did you kill the innocent man, but you also killed his family, etc. And not only that, but afterwards you start covering up by saying his car's his car was filled with explosives. Not only that, but we can tell by this is what the, I'm quoting them. They, we said we can tell by the damages, you know, during the drone strike that there had been a secondary blast. Saying there was a secondary blast basically uh, implies that there was explosives in the cars. And once we first hit it with the drone strike, then another blast came because there was explosives in the car. And then you find out all that is lies, right? So this this culture of covering up, you know, you you, you think you think it's over, but it's not over. You know, it's still things that happens to, that's still things that happen to this day. And, you know, Obama, and we, and you and I talk, talk about this a lot, talk about this a lot. And I don't know, and I always, I always bring it up, you know, because Obama was one of the guys where drone usage reached its complete peak under, under, under President Obama. And I remember watching a movie about the drone pilots. Basically, it has Zoe Kravitz in it. And it was a very interesting movie because I never really thought about this, about, the not only there's obviously the people that get killed in these drone strikes is you know that's I think that's the main thing that happens here that I think all the attention should be on but I also think about the soldiers that carry out these drone strikes you know because 
these are people like once you once you do a drone strike, the result you also the drone usually stays in the area because it has to assess uh the damage, it has to assess the situation, and that's how they judge, you know, the casualties where the target was hit and the civilian casualties and etc. But I think a lot about the pilots that execute these orders. Think about the pilot that had to execute the recent drone strike in Afghanistan. You know, these failures don't start with them. They start at the top. They start with the intelligence community, you know, trying to cut certain shortcuts because they want to appease the public. But this is far from appeasing the public. And, you know, over the course of time, we've seen like structural changes to uh, the way drones, uh, drone strikes are operated. You know, at a point it was, I believe the CIA would do drone strike and the Pentagon would do drone strikes. But the thing is, the, 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 the Pentagon, they operate under Title 10. So basically they have to publicly disclose uh, the drone strikes that they do. The CIA didn't have to do that. So it was much more covert. So under Obama, he basically made the CIA and the Pentagon uh, do basically joint drone strikes. So like, the CIA would be kind of trying to find the intelligence and then the Pentagon would execute, uh, execute the drone strikes under Trump. The, I believe Trump had given more powers to the CIA. I don't know if that was reversed eventually, but they came to a point where they, it was a big talking point about whether the CIA would go back to the, doing their own drone strikes. But again, I just, I'm just saying all this to say like the drone, the drone program needs to be further, further scrutinized and continue to be scrutinized because now drones are going to get much more, um, much more effective and are going to be, and there's obviously going to be new drones coming into play with the advancement of technology. So I think it's something we keep, we need to keep paying attention to and there needs to keep, we need to keep having that thorough investigation that the New York Times did. And unfortunately, I don't think we will, uh, which is very unfortunate, but I, I think this is something we need to talk more about, definitely. Yeah. No. Honestly, I, I don't even have more to add, you know, I just, you know, if I could add anything, it's just to say that we should be more skeptical of, you know, of the foreign policy machinery um, in the U.S. And, uh, you know, and that's at least that's uh, one positive uh, coming from from Joe Biden, who has really is really skeptical of, uh, you know, like of of, of that uh, uh you know of those institutions you know like uh and he for him it traces it back to to 2009 when um obama had promised to uh decrease the the number of uh, troops in afghanistan and then when you know when the deadline arrived he got blindsided by the by his generals who asked him to send more troops instead you know so instead of decreasing the number he said in 30,000 troops um and you know like and joe biden as the vice president told him that that was did not support that decision and and was against it and at the time he had a son who was in the military you know and uh you know he he had a quote that's you know like he said something like that i i don't i won't send in 30,000 troops for women's rights you know something like that and you know, like you know, and I feel like uh, that's one thing that uh, a welcome changed, uh, at least from the Democrat the Democrat side. You know, like that more the skepticism that the uh, new, you know, like nowadays Democrats are bringing to to 
to these institutions, you know, like, um, you know, there used to be a really big consensus when it, it came to, uh, like the war on terror or, as you said, you know, there is only one, uh, congresswoman who voted against, uh, the bill that gave, uh, the president, President Bush all those powers to ex- execute and start up these wars in the Middle East, you know, so, um, but, uh, but yeah, man, like, uh, we should really, really be skeptical of this. And every time when you hear, you know, we're about to send military here or there, you know, like, be skeptical. What exactly are we trying to do? It, it doesn't mean that you have to be a cynic, you know, it just means that you have to be, you know, you just have to question, you know, like, are we doing this, the right thing, you know, because sometimes these institutions, uh, take decisions not because of, uh, malevolence but rather because they just want to save face you know they want to keep pushing the war like instead of ending it today and you know they know that there will be questions you know there will be questions and leaders want to you know leaders of said institutions want to wait until they retire so that they won't be they won't be facing these questions so they you know sometimes it's just out of self-interest uh that these institutions um make uh the political world you know take take these mm-hmm. decisions yeah and you want to get us started on infrastructure uh the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package and everything sure um yeah uh this has also been a really um uh major topic in in u.s politics as of late you know that's pretty much almost everything people are talking about as of late, you know. Um, so part of uh, of uh, Joe Biden's uh, plan to build back better was, first of all, the COVID uh, relief bill, you know, that gave people stimulus checks and, you know, the different COVID-related stuff, but also some uh, investment uh, bills, you know, some infrastructure and some infrastructure investments, you know, and by infrastructure uh democrats argue that there is like you know there's physical infrastructure such as roads uh, highways broadband and you know the rest and also you need like a uh, social infrastructure such as you know child care uh you know like uh senior uh health care and uh you know s- stuff related to like senior senior care and that kind of stuff so uh at the beginning of uh you know the, the the presidency it it looked like they were going to try to pass it uh in one single bill like the infrastructure one because like uh it felt like republicans wouldn't sup- you know republican wouldn't support it you know so uh and one way of passing bills in congress now in you know in the senate since uh uh democrats have a slight ma- majority they have it's a split Senate, so 50-50, but the Democrats have the, the advantage because they have the vice president who can break ties. But there's also the filibuster rules, filibuster rules that uh, for many of the bills, pretty much almost all bills have to have a supermajority, so at least 60 votes uh, in order to pass. You know, but one way of, uh, uh, you know, one way of uh not following that you know of breaking this the filibuster or passing uh bills without uh falling to the traps of the filibuster is to use reconciliation which is which happens which you have like one one every 
one every year, I believe, you know, um, and, you know, it's, it's highly technical and it's really just, it's also bizarre. It's just a really complex system for no reason. Uh, but it's basically that, you know, there are all these rules. So, uh, but basically you can pass, you know, you can pass these sort of bills with, uh, you know, like 51 votes. So Democrats knew that they had, they had two, so they had two reconciliation bills that they could pass this year. So the first one they passed it with uh, was, uh, they passed it for the COVID relief stuff. And the second one, uh, they're trying, they were planning to, to pass it for infrastructure. Uh, but then you had these, uh, like a block of, uh, centrists and moderates in, in the demo, from the, from the democratic side who wanted to, to show that, uh, bipartisanship is still something that can happen in, in U.S. politics and blah, blah, blah. So they decided that they would break the infrastructure bill into two separate bills. So it was supposed to be like one bill around, uh, six trillion or five trillion dollars, you know, um, before starting the negotiations. Uh, and then they, they, like the moderates, meaning Joe Manchin, Manchin and uh, Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, and uh, along with some other Republicans, uh, came together and said that they would they would break off those bills into two, and they would focus first of all into the like the physical infrastructure bill. So that that was that is uh, worth around like one trillion dollars spread over ten years. Um, so they. Well, the the progressive side of the Democrats, both in Senate and in in Congress, uh, said that that's fine as long as you know these two bills are are like come together. You know, so we as progressive, they won't vote for the physical infrastructure without the 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 other one. You know, the social infrastructure. So uh, the Senate can work on that bill, and the Congress will work on on this. Uh, so the Senate can work on the one trillion dollar bill, and the and Congress would work on the three point five trillion dollar bill, and then they they would pass it around roughly around the same time, you know. So it would pass in the Senate and go to to Congress, and the other one would pass in Congress and go to the Senate. But then what happened is that you know the the first one, the one trillion one, passed in 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 the Senate with bipartisan support. Uh, so it didn't need to go through a reconciliation. So it went through, it had over 60 votes and then it was sent to Congress. But the agreement was that like they would pass both of those bills at the same time and send it to, to the president's desk at the same time. Uh, so when, after they, they sent it to Congress, when the progressives started working on their $3.5 trillion bill, moderates, you know, started, you know, like kind of, uh, backstabbing progressive and just like undermining them and saying, Oh, you need to pass our bill first. And, you know, and then we'll see what to do about your bill, you know, and there's that sort of infighting. Uh, so, and that's infighting is still going forward. And, uh, f- and f- for once progressive really stood their ground and said that they wouldn't, if that the first bill was, was brought forth for a vote, it would fail, you know, so. And even in, in Congress, in the lower house, the Democrats don't have a s- slim, uh, majority. So like the progressive caucus, um, would really, could really tank 
that that bill, and that would mean that you'd have to, uh, you know, get started, start back from zero. But uh, just to describe all those two pieces of legislation, because like I feel like, um, in 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 the news, we, people have just been talking about like the price tag and not exactly what's been included. Um, so the first, and here I'm I'm reading the description from the New York Times. The first piece of legislation is a 3.5 budget package uh, proposed by House Democrats with no Republican backing and has has been a focal point of debate because it's filled with uh, social programs, including free community college, paid, fam- paid family and medical leave, and expanded Medicare. It also contains hundreds of billions in tax credits for companies that build wind and solar power or retrofit polluting facilities to capture and bury their own uh, to bury their carbon dioxide emissions before they enter the atmosphere. It expands tax incentives for Americans to buy uh, electric vehicles, um, giving consumers as much as $12,500. It would also penalize oil and gas companies if they leak methane, uh, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. Um, So, you know, and there's a lot on uh, on climate. I'll just skip over that. But also, the but the second bill in Congress, which uh, is a one trillion dollar infrastructure plan, with, that has bipartisan support. As I said, it would provide the largest single infusion of money to uh, to prepare communities for extreme weather fueled by climate change that is already underway. It includes forty seven billion. Uh, dollars over five years in uh, resilience funding to improve the nation's flawed system. Uh, it limits uh, to nation's flawed system, limit damage from wildfires, uh, develop new sources of drinking water in uh, areas plagued by droughts, and and relocate some communities away from high risk areas. And this second bill has already passed this in the Senate, and it's uh, it's been considered in the House and Nancy Pelosi just uh, recently delayed the vote on on this bill because she knew she didn't have the votes. So this is what uh, U.S. politics is uh, is revolving around. And uh, if uh, if I and to finish, I would say that two the two major players who are really just uh, creating all the headaches are the two senators, uh, Senator uh, Mankin, Manchin, um, Joe Manchin. And Senator, Senator Christian Cinema, and there has been some drama because, like, Senator Christian Cinema has been like she was followed in the bathroom by some protesters recently. You know, there's been like, you know, there's been drama all over the place. But in regards to the the first senator, Senator Joe Manchin, like, at least his demands are are known. You know, he had, you know, a list of demands sent to uh 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 leader Schumer back in the summer. So like people know exactly what he wants. He wants to cut the, the $3.5 trillion bill to like $1.5 trillion and just a bunch of stuff. Um, but the mystery has been like Kristen Cinema has been the mystery because nobody knows exactly what she wants. It's almost as if she's playing, you know, like it, it's all about like appearances for her. That's what it feels like. It's not about like the content of what's in in the bills, you know. So, uh, she, she it feels like she wants to be seen as a moderate, a maverick, 
you know, like a John McCain. But like, there's no people don't know exactly what it is that she wants. So it's kind of like, you know, it's really unfortunate because like there are a lot of good programs that would help a, a really large amount of people. But like, you know, and uh, it's really unfortunate that she's playing politics with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what we've seen from Senator Joe Manchin is at least he's given like numbers to, you know, to what he wants and to some of his demands, even though we've seen him also be like uh, talk about how the the the, the progressives uh, reconciliation package is fiscal insanity. You know, uh, he, he said he doesn't want to create an entitlement society and all those things. Uh, that's uh, we could debate those uh, those comments all day, but with Christian Cinema, like during negotiations, like we don't progressives don't even know what her number is, you know. So like, what what do you want us to reduce the reconciliation package to? Like her number, we don't know what it is. So that's how you know. That's how they we've been able to determine. It. Okay, at least Joe, at least uh, Tedder Mansion, he he's more he, in a way. He has more faithful negotiations than Kristen Cinema because you can't really negotiate with somebody that doesn't even tell you what they want, you know, or what they don't want. Exactly. But that's what we've seen happening. And, you know, it's good to see, you know, progressives aren't uh, idiots, you know. I don't know what moderates <laughs> maybe thought that progressives were would be like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll pass the infrastructure package and later we'll do our package. No, I don't. <laughs> like, they, they, they've been in politics long enough. I think they think progressives are too young, but at least you can you can see they know they know politics, you know. If you want to get something passed, you might as well do it together because if, if you just leave it for later, I promise you they'll find a way not to pass whatever bill you want later. And I think that's what I've always appreciated about the new class of progressives that came um into the into the house especially like the aoc class and all them it's like i don't it's not like i personally agree with the politics or anything right like it, it that's up for debate but what i do what i do like is this you know this fight against the establishment you know this fight to trying to change the status quo in uh in government like i've always liked that and it was looking kind of shaky for that group because it, it seemed like at the beginning they came with a lot of fear a lot of a lot of Fire and you would see AOC and that group go head to head with Nancy Pelosi a lot in the beginning, but slowly and surely you saw it kind of die down a bit. So I was kind of concerned. I'm like, what happened to all that energy? You know, it, it seemed like it disappeared. And not too long ago, I believe AOC voted on uh, funding the Iron Dome in uh, Israel, and we know how AOC feels about. The, by AOC, I mean Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. You know how she feels about the Israel, etc. And I remember after casting that vote to fund the Iron Dome, she started crying, you know, and what and then she released a few statements later saying like, yeah, I wept, you know, whatever, whatever. But she never offered a clear cut reason why she would vote to fund the Iron Dome if she's uh against, you know, the Israeli government. She, she or, voted or, present. She voted oh, present. She voted pre- yeah, she, she, yeah. Yeah, she voted present. And mm. I believe that's what the uh, what's her name? Uh I think Tulsi Gabbard used to do that during the Trump impeachment as well. Even though she would talk all that talk, she would just vote <laughs> present. If, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. Effectively, effectively by do by doing that, yeah, you're not you're not making a stand, you know, for exactly what yeah. you believe it. In my like, present present to me is a very easy cop out. You know, mm-hmm. we know what that means. You're not trying to go against the grain because later on, like these votes, like this present vote from AOC for the Iron Dome. It's something that's going to come back again when she wants to run, like not for her seat, uh, not for her, her, her district, but let's say she wants to run maybe senator 
or something else, those votes always come back. We've always seen it happening. All this really be like, why did you vote this way when you said this? Do you believe this and etc. So obviously AOC voted present. She didn't offer an explanation exactly why she voted present, but there's a possibility. And I saw uh, the people at Breaking Point, Crystal and Sagar, talk about it, a bit about that that there might be some registering in her in her if in her in her area. So maybe she didn't want to, you know, affect like how much potential vote she could get in the future, etc. I don't know exactly her reasoning for it, but obviously by her crying, we know she did not want to vote present. She wanted to vote something else, but she voted present for what reason? We don't know, but. What we saw, what we've been seeing from the progressives in this fight with against the infrastructure bill, not even against the infrastructure bill, it's more for the reconciliation package, is that they actually stood their ground, you know, against the moderates in, in the party. And because also they, they thought at the beginning, at least the both bills would be mixed together. Nancy Pelosi was like, okay, no, we'll vote for infrastructure first, and then we'll move on to reconciliation package. So they're like, okay, now you're going against what you had, um, what you had originally said. And, and yeah, now Nancy Pelosi had called for the vote. I believe it was last week. It was last week, right? She had called for the vote last week or the week before. But, you know, it did, that's when really it progressive stood the ground like, yo, this vote is going to fail. So Joe Biden ended up, uh, coming to the Capitol, I believe. Uh, and before leaving, before leaving, that's so why he was part of some negotiation. Before leaving, he said, we'll get it done. Whether it's like right now, I'm paraphrasing, whether it's like right now, you know, whether it's, I believe what he said, whether it's six days, six, uh, six weeks or six months, we'll get it done. So he believed that he, could, that he could get it done. But it was very concerning for a lot of progressive in the beginning because they didn't see Joe Biden be part of the negotiations. You saw him kind of let, let Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer handle it. And for them, it was like, yo, where are you? These, these are the bills that you ran. These are the things that you ran on. You know, these are the things that, you know, that you you say that you believe in where are you so we finally came and that uh and that happened but yes again it's it, it's good to see progressives finally stand up for themselves to, you know and challenge you know the democratic establishment yeah yeah um yeah uh i don't know if you want to move on i, I don't have a lot to add on on this uh, i think we should move on to uh you know kamala harris and what she's been up to um but yeah um you know like it's uh it's really interesting because you know like there's a lot of hype uh when he came to uh Kamala Harris being the first black well the first black the first uh black woman uh to hold the office of the vice presidency you know and the second person of color to hold that that job you know and uh you know uh from a strategic point uh for democrats they should be trying to set her up for success in the future you know because like uh there's a you know like if you look at history you know like vice president tend to run for presidency and sometimes you know a lot of presidents have been were vice presidents you know so nixon um lbj uh you know like uh joe biden and you know a lot of even uh George H.W. Bush, you know, so, um, so like in terms of, uh, just par party strategy, you should be trying to set up your vice president to be as popular as possible and as successful as possible. But, uh, the thing is, like, one of the things that, uh, people have been complaining, especially, uh, 
from from people who support Kamala Harris is that she's been given like terrible portfolios, you know, namely uh, immigration and what else? Like um, something regarding race, I believe, you know, so like impossible <laughs> problems to solve, you know, whereas she should be given like, uh, you know, um, she should be given tasks where like it, the public could really affirm that, oh, yeah, she she did this and it was successful, as was the case for Joe Biden when he was assigned to uh, to negotiate with Congress many times for uh, Barack Obama because like uh, he had more connections and he knew the Senate much better. And like when, whenever he came out of those negotiations, successful negotiations, you know, people would say that, you know, this guy really understands the, the corners of Washington, you know, so. Uh, but, uh, so far for Kamala Harris, it has not been the case. And, uh, you know, I feel like, it, you know, like if it continues like this, they're just setting her up for failure because first of all, you don't know if Joe Biden is going to run in 2024. It looks like he will if he's in, in, in good health. But even beyond 2024, you want, you want your, um, the previous, uh, vice president to be a viable candidate, you know, so. Um, yeah, that's like, honestly, that's, uh, what I've been, I've been thinking about when it comes to Kamala Harris. Yeah. You know, you, you think by the, the portfolios they've been giving her is as if Joe Biden is definitely running in 2024 because you don't do that if Kamala Harris is supposed to be the leader of the Democratic Party, you know, like it, it's, it's just been mishaps after mishaps. It's not only her portfolio, but also the way she's been performing herself like her speeches which i don't i don't know if they're written speeches or not i would assume some of them are not but like some mishaps she's had when she talks about immigration etc it's like these are i'm pretty sure you're a democrat and you're seeing a lot of republican talking points it's not really gonna go well with the progressive democratic base like i'm not i'm not sure where that uh that disconnect is between her speeches and what she says and what the democratic platform is Etc. But yes, obviously, if, when you're giving the the task of immigration, that is your uh, good luck because it's one of the toughest things you could uh, you could you know try to somewhat fix. And the thing is, she can't really fix it herself. You know, she's more she's more there to mediate and etc. But you know, it hasn't been going well for her. But hey, man, she's not running in 2024. She has time to pick that uh, favorability back up. But then they would have to be on the President Joe Biden to change her portfolio and give her better stuff, you know, uh, as, uh, as the future approaches. Uh, but other than that, I don't have much to say on Kamala Harris because we'll see what she does in the future. Uh, it's interesting to be seeing Andrew Yang. He left the Democratic Party and started the forward party. Obviously, it coincides with the release of his book. He, unfortunately for, unfortunately for him, had a, a failed New York mayoral candidacy race. You know, it did not go, uh, too well for him. But uh, I like this idea, you know, going independent, uh, you know, maybe offer a new voice in a country that's very much so of two party system, you know, and just hearing him talk about his ideas for this independent party. You know, I think one of his main things is obviously electoral reform, you know, finding a way of holding people in government, whether you're in the House or Senate, like finding a way to make these people more accountable to their constituents, you know, and to Americans rather than them just being able to basically 
go to Washington and kind of forget about the constituents until, you know, they have to get reelected or whatever. So he's trying to find a way to have some electoral reform in the, uh, in that sense. I think it's, a, it's going to be, uh, uh, welcome, let's say, welcome approach to politics. We'll see if that, if he could be successful with that. We don't know if that's going to happen, but, uh, especially with the way money works in politics, you know, you, your money basically runs politics from the time you have to uh, run, you're asking for donations after you run, you're still acting for donations and this, that's lobbyists that are getting involved. And that means you have to, you know, that means you, you're basically, you're beholden to those people that donate money to you. So if this independent party is going to work, it's going to need a lot of grass food, grassroots uh, donations rather than lobbyists coming in and trying to basically sponsor the big name of Andrew Yang. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a, I have a different feeling about what Andrew Yang is doing. You know, honestly, first of all, uh, I've, I worry that it comes from a self of, uh, from a place of uh, selfishness where, you know, it's like he doesn't see, uh, you know, a future of him. He doesn't see his future in the Democratic Party because he came into the mayoral, mayoral race as the, you know, the candidate who was most likely to win and then, you know, perform really badly. It was like in fourth place or something like that, I, I believe, uh, in the Democratic primary. So like you know like it's not conceivable that he would run for for s- something bigger nationally you know so he would like either he would have to start from you know really start from uh like either like uh from uh you know some uh, run for a post that it's re- that is you know less influential um so i feel like some maybe this like this is maybe f- uh you know for his own you know, for, you know, for his own gain. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just, I just feel weird because first, you know, like, and I, I'm not saying this because like, it's going to split the votes of Democrats or whatever. I, I, I really don't care about that. You know, I, I say that because like Andrew Yang uh, was, you know, a breath of fresh air when he came, you know, as an outsider. But, but one of the issues that, you know, I, I, you know, I, uh, I noticed about him as the, like, first of all, his, uh, presidential, uh, race, you know, as it was, his presidential campaign was going, was going, uh, uh, was advancing. And the same for his mayoral race is that sometimes it, he really didn't understand the issues, you know, it, it felt like he didn't really understand them and he didn't understand the political system. You know, it's good to have like an outsider come in, try to shake up the system, but it's always better when that outsider and actually understand how the system works and what's wrong with the system and not just like the bigger lines, you know, like to, to start a party in, you know, in, in the sort of electoral system that the U S has, it's kind of like, you know, like an independent party, I feel like it's kind of futile because like you, you need, first of all, you need to advocate. Like if I was entering, instead of starting a party, I would start like a, you know, like a grassroots movement or like a, uh, an organization, you know, um, that has the focus on uh, electoral reform, you know, because you can't have like, it's almost in- impossible, you know, for, 
for there to be a major party in the U.S. in U.S. politics now, a third major party, given how the party the system is two party based, you know. So you need to first of all change the system so that it can be favorable to to new parties rather than just start the parties and then try to challenge the system that way, you know. So like uh, I feel like he should have. I feel like he should have tried to change the uh, to uh you know create more awareness about like the electoral system and try to uh if it's possible uh advocate for for changes in in the electoral system in the US so that it moves beyond the the, the two party system it is now instead of just starting a new party which I feel like I'm not too optimistic about the change chances of of that party doing well or being even significant mm-hmm. yeah and to that I don't have much to add I was thinking maybe we could actually talk about uh, Canada and China uh, in another episode unless you want to talk we can talk about it now but I was thinking maybe we could keep that for another episode up to you um yeah, we. I, I feel like we could go into details of of that uh, in a, another episode, but uh, we should just maybe just mention what happened, and uh, you know, just so that people who missed that that news can stay informed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well you, you can. Yeah. You, you sure. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, you know, there has been this case of the two Michaels in Canada. Like, it has been a major source of tension between Canada and China. And, uh, I don't have the date in front of me, but, uh, the two Michaels have, were released, uh, recently. Uh, it's Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. Uh, and the release was made public just hours after the U.S. Justice Department reached an agreement that cleared the way for Huawei Technologies Chief Financial Officer, Meng Wat, Wanzu to return to China in exchange for admitting wrong, wrongdoing in a fraud case. Uh, and this has been criticized by many people that it is a sort of a hostage dipo- diplomacy from, um, from China. And, uh, Canadian officials denied that, you know, it was a quid pro quo kind of thing, you know, and it's the same thing with like, uh, US officials and Chinese officials as well, but we're not, we're not stupid. We see what's, you know, what happened. You, you can just, you know, you can just sentence these people and put them through what you've been putting them through. And then just hours after, uh, you get what you want, you release them and say that those two things weren't connected. So, uh, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll get more into that maybe at a later episode, but. You know, uh, this is basically our episode on U.S. politics. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. I don't have any suggestions uh, for today except for Squid Game. That's it. But, yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, unless you have any, do you have any suggestions? Uh, yeah, Squid Game, obviously, but I haven't uh, finished it. I've only watched two episodes, and it's been great so far. But... Uh, just an update on what I'm currently reading. I'm reading this. It's a book in French. It's uh, it's on uh, Albert Camus. It's called Albert Camus, journalist, reporter à Alger, editorialist à Paris. It's just like, it's almost like a biography of uh, Albert Camus, who was like a really, you know, influential journalist 
and French journalist, French and Algerian journalist in the 20th century. And uh, obviously, you must know him because we read uh, one of his books in high school, L'Etranger. And, you know, I've read that book a, a few times and I'm planning to read it again because it's, you know, it's one of those books that makes you think and confuses you a bit. But uh, uh, Albert Camus career is something that you know like and his career was incredible and his uh style of journalism you know and his uh just uh mission in uh of journalism is something that uh, i feel like uh would be really welcomed in the today's media you know it was i feel like uh his fight this journalistic fight is what journalism should be about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, those are for our suggestions for uh, today. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. And uh, goodbye and good night. Good night. Good night.